we're here on the banks of the Yarra uh, in Melbourne with Race Matthews. G'day, Race. How are you? Hi. Good to be with you. Excellent. So you've had a, a very long and distinguished career in, in politics and academia, um, and you've been uh, very interested in cooperatives all the way through. Is, is that correct? Yes, that goes back right to, um, well, right back to my childhood in a sense, because the guy who first introduced me to the idea of cooperatives uh, was in fact my, until his death last year, was my oldest friend. We met when we were eight or nine years old. Wow. Um, he, a guy called Sam Weisel, he joined the Jewish youth movement here in Melbourne. He lived around the corner from us in Elston Week at the time. And later he um, took part in training uh, young Jewish people who wanted to go and live a cooperative life in Israel through the kibbutz movement and finally um, he actually he um, married his girlfriend and I married my girlfriend in the same year when we were both 20 years old and had to get our parents permission to marry. That year I joined, the, my new wife and I joined the Labour Party and Sam and his wife went off to their kibbutz near Rim in the Negev in Israel where they spent the rest of their lives until they were killed in a motor accident last year. So it was, I guess the word co the first time I heard the word cooperative would have been from Sam in the context of the kibbutz movement and it fired my imagination at the time. This seemed the way people lived together. So where did this co-op idea come from? Well, it, it comes from um, the formation of new cooperatives is usually almost invariably driven um, by special needs which aren't being met from or can't be met uh, on any other basis. For example, the, uh, um, the classic case of the original Rochdale power cooperators in Britain. They were um, looking for a means. These were a group of um, cotton weavers in Manchester, Rochdale in Manchester. Um, they were very poor. Uh, they needed access to affordable food, um, fuel, and they formed their um, initial cooperative in Toad Lane in Manchester and out of that grew the great British consumer cooperative movement, what we call the British Wholesale Cooperative the, um, these days and a huge number of people in Britain are still members of that big cooperative and routinely uh, shop at Co-op, the co-op supermarkets, as opposed to um, cold or what have you. Yeah. And the oh, other stream, of course, is the need um, initially of um, 
small farmers for carry-on finance between crops and they came up with the idea that if they pooled their resources they could create funds from which they could borrow at affordable rates. So just as shopping at the local co-op meant that you could get the necessities of life at affordable rates, so um, belonging to um, a, a credit cooperative, credit union, as that later became known, farmers getting um, access to affordable credit. Was there much cooperation or cooperative style or type of structures going on before the, the Rochdale experiment? They certainly existed. Um, but Rochdale's usually, I guess for the purposes of historians, regarded as the takeoff point. Everything mm. virtually in the minds of cooperative historians tracks back to Rochdale. Yeah, I guess they really formalised it and made it quite clear and able for people to follow. And they worked out the, um, well, for example, they worked out <coughs> the 10 basic principles of cooperation and gave the, the, the gave it the um, the whole its whole structure. Pretty amazing job. What did Margaret Mead say? That only a small group of people who are committed can ever change the world. And what's the scale of the co-op movement these days compared to uh, one little shop in the back of England somewhere? Oh, a giant um, chain of. Um, Supermarkets, pharmacies, travel agencies, all those sort of, lots of enterprises. Mm, and has it spread around the world much? Uh, yes, it's um, particularly um, widespread in the developing world. India, for example, has a very highly developed cooperative movement. And I suppose, as you say, the majority of the affiliates of the um, International cooperative, international cooperative body uh, would be from third world rather than the second world um, countries. Hmm. So, what was the what was the first appearance of co-ops in Australia? We had um, consumer cooperatives uh, in the nineteenth century. We had farm um, cooperative agriculture agricultural cooperatives of various kinds in the 19th century. Um, the credit union movement didn't take off until the 20th century, um, but it became um, the largest single manifestation of um, cooperative activity in Australian experience. And of course there's a, a whole separate saga of Things like housing cooperatives, special per, special needs cooperatives, of which housing is one example. Do you see this way of organising as a, a new sort of form of, of people relating to each other in cooperation, or do you reckon that goes back a long way throughout human history? I think it goes back um, a long way in because necessity is a very hard taskmaster and people will do what they have to do to meet their um, uh, their inescapable needs and 
practices rather than organisations, I guess, preceded cooperatives. People were working out ways to co- cooperate informally well before the first of the formal cooperatives came into being. Do you reckon the, those formal sort of co-ops in the Rochdale style were a reaction to the, the beginning of capitalism and the... Yes, very much a, a manifestation of the Industrial Revolution, of the fact that very end of the enclosures in Britain, lots of people who had previously, had, who, who had lived for generations on the land in Britain, small-scale farmers, um, farming on land which was the property of very large-scale landowners uh, were forced off those, uh, forced off their holdings and um, found employment or didn't find it, went to the big, went to the burgeoning new cities, Manchester's, the Liverpool's, London of the Industrial Revolution uh, to find an alternative livelihood. They had no alternative. And it was among the ranks of the hugely deprived and downtrodden workers of the Industrial Revolution in Britain that the modern cooperative movement, the Rochdale movement, was born. You spent a long time in government um, and you were, you were a minister for co-ops, I believe, for a while. And what, what do you think the influence of government policy and, and the resulting laws that come out of government policy have in, in steering the co-op movement and, and forming it? Well, yes, I was a minister in the Kane Labor government in Victoria. I wasn't minister for cooperatives. Indeed, there wasn't a, mem- a minister for cooperatives in that government, although there was a Minister for Cooperatives in the Labor government in New South Wales. Okay. My involvement um, as a member of the Kane government, as far as cooperatives were concerned, was through the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Cooperatives, which produced a blueprint for cooperative um, development in Victoria recognised the need for new cooperatives legislation in Victoria and finally was disappointed um, the legislation that it had recommended um, was not enacted and we were the poorer for the, uh, the absence of it. The original cooperatives legislation in Victoria, which dates from the 1950s, uh, creation of the uh, Labor government, John Cain Senior, was good legislation for its time, um, but circumstances change over the years and legislation needs to be updated and um, that hadn't occurred. There was need for modernisation uh, that was already already to be um, enacted um, when Joan Kerner was Premier. It didn't happen. It was the Kennett government, ironically, one of the more reactionary governments in Victoria's experience, um, which in fact amended the Cooperatives Act in some quite useful ways. 
Uh, we've also seen in recently, in over the last few years in Canberra, uh, the Senate um, doing a major investigation of cooperatives and their potential to contribute to economic and social well-being. In Australia, they brought down a substantial report and um, legislation likewise at the federal level is being um, improved. There's a, I think it's fair to say there's a new constituency um, within the parliamentary parties, a new appreciation within the parliamentary parties on both sides of the parliament um, of the potential of cooperatives. Yes, Barnaby Joyce was uh, quite instrumental in, in bringing out a, uh, a website which can walk people through the, the cooperative application process and the documents behind that. So it's definitely on all sides. Yes, that website was a part, was a byproduct of, the, I think, of the Senate inquiries. Okay. But I, I must say that the National Party, or rather the Country Party, as it used to be called, was one of the great supporters of the, uh, of the cooperative movement, and I knew a number of um, Country Party members um, of the Victorian Parliament in particular, uh, who were very cooperative-minded indeed and had been involved in cooperatives at uh, various stages of their lives. Yeah, well, I guess that's that whole strain of farmer cooperatives that you mentioned earlier. Well, it's, very, it's really essential for farmers because um, farmers have two um, reasons for um, turning to cooperatives. One is access to affordable carry-on finance between the harvest for which they turn to credit unions. Secondly, access to affordable machinery and um, consumables for the conduct of their actual business through counterparts of the um, retail cooperatives. And um, third, a cooperative marketing, a way of capturing some of the value of a product which is um, added beyond the farm gate. Mm. So, um, do you see that there's a possibility for a, a cooperatively run society, say if, if all of this suddenly took off and cooperatives became the, the sort of the main form of business in Australia, do you reckon that would be able to, A, maintain all of the systems that we have going at the moment through the capitalist sort of economy and and B, replace it? I think that um, cooperatives constantly have to demonstrate in a hands-on way uh, their capacity to contribute specific forms uh, that the application of that capacity might um, take in particular circumstances. Um, there's a, a mindset on part of government, as far as cooperatives are concerned, show me. And um, at various times in our history, the cooperative movement has been better at um, showing me than at others. No, I don't see, and I, to my regret, I don't see a cooperative re revolution taking over <laughs> and replacing capitalism. 
uh, my particular interest over a very long period of time and uh, the topic of two of the books that I've written has been the example of the great um, complex of worker-owned businesses, the worker cooperatives, which operate out of Mondragon in the Basque region of Spain. I've spent time with the Basque cooperatives uh, on a number of um, occasions, followed their um, development very closely, kept um, my eye on their actual economic and social performance um, and tried to tease out the principles underlying their um, success and how that might um, relate um, to circumstances um, in Australia. Um, I mean, if you take them on to an example, essentially in um, 1956, a couple of dozen people in this small um, one-time Spanish steel-working town um, get together, take over a disused local factory and begin um, manufacturing small paraffin-fired um, heating and cooking stoves. Um, and from that um, standing start in 1956, you've got a worldwide network of enterprises today which provides jobs for um, rather more than 80,000 um, people, a huge turnover in the, uh, the multiplicity of um, individual cooperative enterprises, worker-owned enterprises, which um, are grouped under the Mondragon rubric. And I think anybody who um, has the well-being um, of the cooperative movement at heart and looks to a larger social role for cooperatives can't but pay attention to Mondragon. It's the lodestar, if you like. Yes, yes, it's certainly one of the one of the poster children. What other um, what other good examples of, of well, let, let's go the other way first. What are some of the common mistakes that cooperatives make? Things to avoid if you're looking at starting one. Well, I think it's very important for cooperatives to be multi-stakeholder. Part of the genius of Mondragon um, is that the co cooperatives which have been created there are multi-stakeholder cooperatives. That is, for example, um, one of the key arms, the Mondragon, the Mondragon Group is one of Spain's largest, perhaps the largest chain of supermarkets, hypermarkets and shopping malls, the Eroski um, consumer cooperatives. Now, if you take a Rochdale model, the members of that cooperative would all be consumers. That's not the case with Eroski. Eroski, the governing body um, of the cooperative, is made up jointly 
of the people who um, shop there and the people who work there. And that, uh, that um, multi-stakeholder model is pursued throughout the entire group in what is a very, a very, very diverse um, range of activities. I mean, these people are into banking, they are into social um, services delivery, they are into consumer cooperation, they are into civil engineering on a major scale, they are into industrial research and um, development, they run their university, the students at the university have their own cooperative uh, in which they work to fund their courses. Um, you know, but there's probably a Mondragon cooperative to cover that field of activity. And, and they've it, obviously done that deliberately, haven't they? Yes, they, oh yeah, yes. Um, but it's been, it's a constantly, um, constantly evolving entity. Um, Spain was one of the countries hardest hit by the um, global financial crisis. Mondragon and the vast region of Spain where Mondragon is created and in part through Mondragon weathered that economic setback, economic disaster for Spain better than the rest of, um, of Spain. They're a force for um, economic stability among other things in terms of national economic policy. Mm. So I might turn to democracy now. Now, democracy is one of the core principles of... Uh, one of, member, one vote, one value. Oh, yes, of cooperatives. And um, how do you see the, the... I call it the daily democracy of a cooperative organising every day. How, how does that contrast to the larger political democracy we have, which is sort of a, a periodic democracy for most people, where you get sort of a choice every three or four years? Well, I think this is a very important point and probably isn't um, often enough or strongly enough made. It's very hard to sustain an effective democracy if the only exercise uh, the average citizen has of his democratic rights is to cast a vote every three years at either the state or local state or federal level. That's a very devalued notion of citizenship. Where does the real potential for people to have a meaningful input into the quality of their lives and a reasonable share in the outcome of their labours, it's in the workplace. And that's why I am so interested in worker cooperatives as one set, subset of the wider cooperative movement and as Mond in Mondragon as the supreme example of that. Now, currently in Australia, we sort of, if you ignore the Queen, you have sovereignty at the national and state level in a sort of shifting combination. In an ideal world, what sort of scale do you reckon sovereignty should be held at? I guess I'm thinking... Well, no. you've got to remember that um, 
the boundaries for our current states were drawn in the colonial office in London back in the 18th century. If we were starting anew, we wouldn't set up a system of states the way they um, currently exist in Australia. But the the questions, in a way, is academic because all this is enshrined in the Constitution and Australians are extremely adverse to even minor changes in the Constitution as our record of failed um, referenda demonstrates. Um, But it's possible to imagine, if you want to go off on a utopian frolic, a much more um, effective um, structure for government. If you were starting anew, you wouldn't um, put in place the arrangements, constitutional arrangements, um, federal, state, local, municipal, uh, that we currently have. Mm, What sort of arrangement do you... Just imagine, yeah, it's just a hypothetical thing. What what sort of arrangement would uh, come to mind? Oh, it'd be a variation on regionalism. You'd very likely have um, local government on the... Um, well, I think it would be government on the basis of a few major urban con- conurbations which, need to, which are so big that they need to be self-governing and otherwise on a regional basis, an economically and socially sensible um, division of regions throughout the country. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm saying that in the context of if we are rebuilding a strong cooperative movement, then we don't necessarily need to follow in our designs the, uh, the boundaries that are set by the states, particularly now that there's a national cooperative law. Well, that's certainly true, but the cooperative movement always has to um, live live within the framework of the law at both the state and federal levels, and it's important for the cooperative movement to work in close uh, collaboration with all the major political parties and make sure that... um, its contribution is understood there and its needs are understood mm. there. And, and by and large, they've been successful doing that, especially now that we have, for the first time, a really effective peak body for the cooperative movement. In the Business Council for Cooperatives and Mutuals, been many attempts in previous um, decades to set up such an organisation, but uh, it's finally happened. Yeah, they look like they're doing quite a good job. They're doing, they're doing a very good job in my mind. Mm. So I guess what you've just said sort of leads to a, a contradiction that I've had in my mind, and I haven't come up with a good solution to it at all, in that the cooperative movement definitely does need to work in with government and and cooperate and, and, and move on and, and places like Bologna in northern Italy show what a shining example can be had from that sort of thing but on the other hand I see all the non-government organisations completely beholden to government grants and, and the bureaucracy tinkers with what they do and, and it, it very much interferes with their core mission and 
there's this, this tension between having to work with government and losing your autonomy, I suppose. How do you see ways out of that one? Well, the idea is to have a mutually respectful relationship between government and the cooperative uh, movement. And from time to time, place to place, that has been um, achieved to greater or lesser degrees. When um, I first became involved with the Victorian Parliament, I had three years as um, Principal Private Secretary to the um, Leader of the Opposition in Victoria before going into the Victorian Parliament. The main official public service person in, as far as the cooperative movement was concerned was the Registrar of Cooperatives. Now, registrar, so the word Registrar suggests regulation and record-keeping, but in fact the Registrar of Cooperatives at the time um, was um, involved interactively with the cooperative movement, um, facilitating the work of the cooperative movement, um, advising the cooperative movement and being advised by by the cooperative. It was a, it was a dynamic, um, mutually supportive, mutually advantageous arrangement, which um, subsequently was lost. I mean, now it's um, a very, I mean, I mean, the registration function is it's still there, but that's about all that's still there. Yeah. The proactive relationship has been lost and needs to be created, recreated. Mm. So you've also, I mean, <laughs> you don't give up on your academic life. I saw that you, you just did a, another doctorate in theology a couple of years ago. Um, what was, um, there, there was an important document many years ago now called Rerum Novarum. Um, what, was, what was that and what was the significance of it? Well, the significance of Rerum Novarum, um, Rerum Novarum was the response of the, um, of the Catholic Church to the Industrial Revolution and all the social problems that stem from the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the translation is literally of new things and it was concerned with the um, desperate state of the industrial working class, the displaced agricultural working class who had been um, dragooned into the great new uh, burgeoning industrial um, cities of uh, the United Kingdom and Europe, America and um, came up with the um, two very important conclusions, or yes, conclusions. A, support for the trade union movement. The trade union movements were essential. Uh, Secondly, that the ownership of productive property should be widespread. I mean, that, that is the fundamental notion of worker control of, of um, enterprises a la Mondragon uh, and a la some that have been formed in Australia. That, and that in turn I see as being the key to get a, getting a more effective citizenship, citizen participation across the board. The, the latest Pope 
Francis has issued another encyclical. Is there any sort of parallels or follow-ons within that? Okay. Leo XIII, who wrote the encyclical letter Rerum Navarum, that was translated into English by the great um, English Cardinal uh, Henry Manning, um, and it was adapted by um, English Catholics uh, as in a new political philosophy called distributism, which was uh, called for the wide shares of widespread um, ownership of productive property and looked to the cooperative movement as one avenue through which that could be secured. Now, in one, in one, on one track, that leads to Mondragon. Mondragon was the devised and developed um, by a Catholic priest um, in conjunction with young workers in the town of Mondragon. It spent from 1941 to 1956 to working out how it would all work and then uh, when they felt that they had completed that task, operationalising it and with the success that I've described, um, that I've described to you. Um, a, a similar attempt was made to operationalise the teachings of Rerum Navarum in Australia in the 1930s, partly in response to the privation during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And um, um, that led in the post-war period to two very significant developments. First, consumer cooperatives, the Young Christian Workers, which is the youth movement arm of the Catholic Church, established cooperative uh, stores. Um, sorry, go back a step. First thing they did was create housing cooperatives, access to affordable housing finance. Secondly, uh, they realised that the people who were building their, these houses, who were acquiring houses through these cooperative societies, we're going to need carpet to put on the floor, furniture to put in, in the rooms and so on. And um, so the logical thing was to set up consumer cooperatives to meet that need, which they also um, did. The consumer cooperatives um, flourished for a time, but ultimately died out. But the modern credit union movement was a direct outgrowth of those what were originally parish credit unions. And of course it ended, they ended up as um, multi-million dollar um, cooperative entities. In my view, the Achilles heel of that movement was its failure to look to multi-stakeholder models. They were purely credit union. People were savers and borrowers. 
um, housing co-op is were savers and borrowers. Yeah, okay. And um, members of the retail cooperatives were customers. None of them went down the path of enfranchising the workers who actually delivered the services. So the multi-stakeholder sort of design, I guess, is a a design principle that's probably quite a really good one to follow, and I've certainly come to that conclusion myself. What other design principles for co-ops are are really essential in your mind? Oh, they're they're the the principles that are set out in the, um, what are called the Rochdale principles. One member, one vote, one value, and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and by and large, the cooperative movement has stuck very closely to them. The big opportunity now is probably in service delivery, particularly in carer cooperatives. I mean, with the casualisation of the workforce, uh, one of the responses is for casualised workers to band together in worker cooperatives to deliver the services and get some negotiating heft, get recognition from the trade union movement and all that. And we're already beginning to see some of those um, cooperatives in fields like cleaning, um, caregiving in the home and do you feel there's, there's sort of a resurgence of cooperatives in the cooperative movement at the moment? No, I don't. Uh, I think I'd see the potential for it, but I don't think it's yet arrived. The government has to relate to cooperatives with a, um, a light touch. Yes, it's too easy for governments to... Um, put a regulatory framework around cooperatives which impedes their growth and um, development. And I mean, the two biggest examples of cooperation in, in Australia are, uh, say, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, would have been the permanent building societies on the one hand and the credit unions on the other. Government through Treasury took the line with both those groups, get big or get out. Um, And they did get big, but they finally got out as well. They demutualised or they turned themselves into conventional banks. For example, the Bendigo Bank, it's a permanent building society, it was a cooperative Ah. before it became the Bendigo Bank. And you can point to to a number of of examples of what are now banks, but used to be cooperatives, particularly in the financial services sector. So I guess the the major change in a demutualisation is is the shift of focus from the whole existence of the co-op is there for the members, whereas in a conventional business, their primary purpose is to 
and reach the investors. Shareholders, mm. yes. Yes, well, what we saw, in the, particularly in the 1990s, was a huge wave of what are called demutualizations. Um, opportunistic groups within bodies such as the AMP and often that um, opportunistic groups were as much in the management as they were in the boards of the organisations saw an opportunity to profit from demutualising those organisations and well for example the AMP is a perfect case history uh, the AMP, when it was a mutual, i.e. a cooperative, uh, was one of the great um, pools of um, patient capital, patient development capital in Australia. The AMP had a great record of responsible financial stewardship going back for 100 years more. Um, then it demutualised and, uh, well, the current banking inquiry is uh, exposed where that has taken us. In Britain, cricket clubs and football clubs that owned their ovals demutualised. <laughs> so they would have yeah. to pay to use yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> and former directors and former managers of these entities walked away with very uh, very large chunks of um, cash settlements, yeah. payouts. So what are the stories that are told to the members to enable this sort of thing? Um, well, members in some circumstances uh, received um, a payout on, um, on their shares in the, in the cooperatives. Um, and it's a measure of the, the failure of those um, cooperatives not to have engendered a greater sense of identification um, between the members and the cooperative. There's a um, what's called the generation degeneration cycle um, in the um, affairs of bodies such as cooperatives in, in the first stage um, a cooperative is formed to meet the need on the part of a group of people for an essential commodity or service at an affordable price. Thus Rochdale and all those people are highly motivated and very hands-on involved either directly in the um, in the conduct of the cooperative or taking a consistent interest um, in its affairs participating in its decision making processes in the second stage with the success of the cooperative um, a bureaucracy grows up and in the third stage the um, bureaucracy have completely taken over and in instances like the AMB ends up 
demutualizing the whole thing and um, extracting some portion of the value for its own um, enrichment. Now, in uh, in other countries, other countries have different laws, um, laws which require that where where a cooperative goes out of business. Um, its assets must be transferred to a fund, government fund, which is um, capitalising the creation or expansion of new cooperatives. The expansion of existing cooperatives or the creation of new ones. Mm. And that's called the principle of the conservation of cooperative capital. For example, I remember spending some time with a cooperative in America about 30 years ago. This cooperative started uh, in response to a need for affordable home milk deliveries in Seattle, and it was very, very successful in providing a service which had not previously been available. After a while, though, the big commercial dairies moved in and started matching the service that the cooperative was providing. Okay, the cooperative um, looked at and examined itself and um, decided that, okay, the need that for which we were formed um, is now being met from another quarter. Will you will um, retarget our resources, and they became a cooperative instead for um, optometrical testing and the supply of spectacles. <laughs> well, that's quite a change in direction. And, they, and <laughs> they became very, very, very successful at doing that. But the same thing happened. The big optometrical corporations moved in. Ah. So they reinvented themselves again. Wow. And became a um, cooperative for um, delivery of accommodation and um, support services for elderly people. And then when I last looked at them, which is a long time ago, uh, they had condominiums. Uh, a chain of condominiums across America <laughs> for where elderly people lived as members of a, of a cooperative. Yeah, yeah, nice one. Well, I guess that sort of exemplifies the the dynamic nature of a co-op, doesn't it? Yes, yes. As Malcolm Turnbull used to be fond of saying in another, another context, you have to be nimble. <laughs> yes. Now, you were trained as a teacher many years ago, and you've spent a lot of time in the education system, both as a, a student and, I believe, as a lecturer. How do you see our education system as preparing us for life within a cooperative sort of system? Uh, the way I see it, and certainly... I've had both experiences within the education system, whereas the first public high school I went to was very much uh, an ordered thing and you must behave and follow the rules. And when I got kicked out of that, 
I went to one which was completely the opposite and was completely run by the students, which was School Without Walls in Canberra, which has since been closed because it was defunded by the government, essentially. Um, yeah, how do you see the, the mainstream education system at all levels preparing us for cooperative life? Oh, there's really no, no point of convergence <laughs> there. In some countries, um, cooperation would be um, introduced as a, um, a topic in um, the context of, of something like a, a civics course. Um, the Americans used to be very good at civics, teaching civics. And, of course, there's an arm of the progressive education movement I mean, there have been examples of progressive schools where the students play an active part in the decision-making process of the school. But schools are not democracies. <laughs> no, they're not. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wind up? No, I, I just hope that the creation of the Business Council um, for Mutuals and Cooperatives and the outcome of the Senate investigation of cooperatives are harbingers of a cooperative renaissance in Australia. I believe the need for that is very real and the chance of seizing the day likewise is very real and uh, it's very much my hope that those two factors will produce a new wave. Well, we'll do what we can to get it done, eh? Yep. Chris Matthews, thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you for coming. Good talking to you. Likewise. <laughs>